A picture is worth a thousand words. Thank you. Yeah, it's a famous saying. A picture is worth a thousand words. We have all experienced how pictures describe incredible events, incredible scenes, incredible things. Many times pictures reveal what the mind and heart understand, yet words themselves fail to be able to describe. Sometimes a picture offers meaning to what would take many, many words to describe. Just in one picture, in one illustration, that would take pages and pages of words to detail and describe what is being portrayed. And this is one of the reasons why picture books are good for learning for young children. And also because they can't read. Amen. <laughs> and we're teaching them to read and we're like, dog, cat. Or we used to, what was it? Dick and Jane and Spot and all that stuff, right? Uh, so pictures tell a story. Pictures describe to us, they present to us details. And it's the same way with the tabernacle, the wilderness tabernacle in the Old Testament. Think of the wilderness tabernacle as like a masterpiece painting, if you will. And in this painting of the tabernacle, it is just describing so many things, so many ways that literally uh, there, there are the words of Scripture that describe them, but the picture brings it forth to us, presents it to us in just an even a more amazing and dynamic way. It is a picture that tells us a powerful story. Tonight we're going to take a look at the tent, the, the tent proper of the wilderness tabernacle. We have looked so far at three different pieces of furniture of the tabernacle. We've talked about the Ark of the Covenant, which was really God's throne in the midst of his people, and his throne is called the mercy seat. The mercy seat. Yeah, I just wanted to check, see if you guys were paying attention. Okay, just, you know, just give me just Arnold Horshack it if you know it, okay? <laughs> the Ark of the Covenant, his throne amongst his people is called the mercy seat. Now we talked about the table of showbread and that invitation that we have to come and dine with the Lord, that he has an invitation to us, that he's knocking on our heart's door, and that if we would open up to him, he wants to be a part of our lives. He wants us to have fellowship with him. And then, of course, we learned about the golden candlestick, the, the menorah, and about this being the light of the tabernacle for the priesthood, but also signifying the light of the world. And, and we learned that Jesus is the light of the world, and also specifically that who he is, he wants us to be also to the world. So that as he is the light of the world, he would say to us tonight, you are the light of the world, and don't let that light be hidden. Don't let it be hidden under a basket, but put it up on the lampstand. Put it up on the candlestick holder, and so that the, that the others can see the light of Jesus. Amen? And so we've looked at these three things. Now we're going to look at the actual tent uh, tonight and uh, some, get down very specific. Israel was instructed to make this tent 
in a certain way with certain materials. In a certain way with certain materials. And so what we see when we look at the tent is a, a picture. It's an incredible presentation to us of Jesus, of Jesus Christ, of who he is, his heart, his character, and, and, and what he came to earth to do and to accomplish on our behalf. It, it really paints the picture, the story of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The picture of the tabernacle gives us details into the person, the work of Jesus that is, it's absolutely glorious, it's wonderful, it's moving, and it's, it's intellectual, it's deep, it's incredible. The tabernacle was a tent. Uh, the tabernacle paints for us a picture of the awesome work that Jesus did by taking all of our sins upon himself. So uh, once again, the tabernacle was a tent and it was, it was God's dwelling in the midst of the, the nation of Israel. And so the, the tabernacle, a tent, and within the tent there were two rooms and those pieces of furniture that we've discussed over the last few weeks, those were the pieces of the tabernacle that were arranged in those rooms inside the tent. And the tabernacle's location, when erected, was at the center point of the encampment of Israel. And so you had the 12 tribes of Israel, the, the nation of Israel, that were in the 12 tribes, the 12 families that had descended from the 12 sons of Jacob. And so those tribes were divided up and they were given uh, specific areas to the east, to the west, to the north, and the south of the tabernacle, and the tabernacle being very, very much right in the center. And so it really painted another picture for them of God, his throne, his presence being at the center of their encampment, at the center of their lives. And, and, and we need to see this too, uh, that God is the center point. He's the one that should be the focus of our lives. Israel's encampment was set up with the tabernacle in the center and three tribes encamped on each side. So you had three tribes on the east, three tribes on the west, three tribes on the north and the south, and you know all the cardinal points, right? And, and so the tribes encamped on each side to remind the Hebrews that God was in the center of their lives. Now the tabernacle's description is found in Exodus chapter 26. And we're only going to read one verse of this chapter, and it's a lot of detail in this chapter. Okay, so your homework is just to read Exodus chapter 26, but we're only going to read the first verse. Amen? And, um, and what we're going to see tonight is this, that the materials are material. The materials are material. Let's take a look at Exodus 26, verse 1. It says this, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven li linen and blue, purple, and scarlet, scarlet thread with artistic designs of cherubim. You shall weave them. The materials are material. The materials used in the construction of the tabernacle were and are material. They are important, significant, consequential. There were many materials used in the construction of the tabernacle. Tonight we're, we're looking at just a few of them and one in particular. 
The main tent of the tabernacle was made of fine linen, and it was woven with blue, purple, and scarlet thread. These, these materials speak to us about Jesus, who he is, where he was from, and what he came to do. Who Jesus is and what he did are spelled out for us in the four Gospels. You fast forward from the time of the tabernacle, about 1,500 years to the time of Christ, you see the life of Christ. And, this, and the life of Christ is, we have, we have history. We have uh, stuff written down about Christ in four Gospels. The four Gospels are written by eyewitnesses of Jesus and present Jesus from different angles. Each gospel presents a specific aspect of who Jesus is. And we see this in the fabric and the threads that made up the tent there in Exodus 26, verse 1. The white fine linen in the Bible, whenever you come to find fine linen in the Bible, it always speaks to us of righteousness. In the tabernacle, it speaks of Jesus' righteousness. Luke's gospel presents Jesus as the Son of Man, a man, yet a perfect man. So Luke's gospel, we see the, the, the perspective of Jesus that we see from that gospel, and if you were to read, sit down and read Luke, you would come away with his presentation, here is Jesus, the Son of Man. And he was perfect. He was perfect. There was no sin in him. There was no deceit or guile in his mouth. He didn't have bad language. He wasn't a liar. He was perfect. Amen? Amen. And he came and he lived perfectly, a perfectly righteous life. Here on the earth, he was perfect. Jesus, the righteous. Now then you come to the blue thread. So you had the linen, the, the, the linen it speaks of his righteousness, and we see that in Luke's gospel, the Son of Man. The blue thread speaks of heaven and of deity because Jesus came from heaven. He's from the other realm. He's from heaven. And John's gospel is the gospel that presents Jesus as the Son of God. John's gospel presents Jesus as the Son of God. It articulates his deity. The blue thread points to this. Jesus is from heaven, and he is God. And we see this in the blue thread, blue speaking of the heavens in that sense. And he came down to earth. He came down from heaven above, and he came down because we couldn't reach him. Remember from the first message? We couldn't reach up to God's level, so God had to come down to our level. And that's exactly what he did. The purple thread speaks of royalty. It's that royal color, that purple is that color of royalty. Matthew's gospel presents Jesus as the king of the Jews. Matthew, you read Matthew's gospel, you come away, here's what he wants you to come away with, that, that Jesus is the king of the Jews that was foretold that would come. Matthew begins his gospel with Jesus' genealogy. As Matthew begins to lay out Jesus' rightful claim to the throne of David. And then he goes from there, beginning to lay out his case and his presentation of Jesus. And so Matthew's gospel presents him as king of the Jews. Now the last thread that we're going to, to take a look at 
we're going to spend a little bit more time on tonight, okay? We're going to take a look at this last thread. It is the scarlet thread. The scarlet thread speaks of Jesus' suffering. It is Mark's gospel that presents Jesus as the suffering servant, as the person who came into the world to bear a burden, to suffer for the sins of people. It's Mark's gospel. It's like if you want to read a gospel and you want like kind of the reader digest version of the gospel, it's Mark. You know, that's the quick one. That's the short one. There's no genealogy. There's no like Bethlehem. There's no wise men following a star. It's just boom, here's Jesus and he's doing miracles, you know, and he's here to save and he's here to bear a burden and he's here to suffer and go to the cross and suffer and die for the sins of many. And so Mark's gospel portrays to us, presents to us the suffering servant. And so we see this in the scarlet thread. So I want to explore the scarlet thread a little more tonight. So we're going to spend some time looking at this scarlet thread. Now I have a slide that says scarlet thread. Oh, there it is. Scarlet thread. You guys are with me. Good job. Okay. 50 gold stars. <laughs> the scarlet thread. Now, as we know, the Old Testament was not written in, in English. It was written in Hebrew, right? The Old Testament, written in Hebrew. And yes, you have the Old Testament written in Hebrew, okay? And so if you were go, go back to the original language and you come to Exodus 26, verse 1, and you read that and it comes down to the word scarlet thread, it is the word there in the Hebrew, which is the word tolaf, tolaf, okay? Write that down. Circle it, put, you know, stars around it, put, you know, circle it, more circles around it, tolaf, okay, scarlet. The word for scarlet in the Old Testament is the word tolaf. And so throw the next screen up there. So I'm just really trying to put, really just get this into your head, right? Scarlet equals tolaf. The word tolaf in the Hebrew there means either scarlet or worm. Scarlet or worm. They would take this toloth worm. It was a toloth worm, and they would take this toloth worm, and they would grind up the toloth worms. I don't know exactly how they did it, but maybe they put a bunch of them in a bowl. It was like, you know, making wine or something, or like, you know, remember I Love Lucy, and she got up in the, you know, the, remember that episode? The famous episode of Lucy and the Grapes, you know, doing the, you know, okay, come on. You know, none of you young people know anything what I'm talking about, but that's, that was funny stuff, right? And, uh, and so they would get these toloth worms and they would, you know, put them in a bowl and they would grind them up. And as they ground them up, it would, it would produce, it would make a scarlet dye. And this is the scarlet dye from these crushed toloth worms was the dye that they would make the scarlet thread. This is how they made the scarlet thread. Now, with that background of information, I want to take you to Psalm chapter 22. Psalm chapter 22. Not 23, which is perhaps the most famous of all the Psalms. 23, I am... Huh? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, Right? I'm, I'm stuck in the I am's. <laughs> I am your shepherd. <laughs> but no, 
one chapter back, Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. And by messianic, I mean that the psalm is a psalm that speaks of the Messiah, the, the, the one that would come, the one that would come and be the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that would save the people, that would save Israel. So this is what Psalm 22 speaks of. It's a messianic psalm. And Psalm 22 reveals an amazingly accurate description of crucifixion written hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented as a form of execution. What we read from the words of this psalm are literally the things that a person who is being crucified, that physically that they're going through as they would be hanging on a cross. This is amazing. Psalm 22 is Jesus speaking from the cross about a thousand years before the cross. And that, my friends, is amazing. In fact, many of the things that Jesus said from the cross are found in this psalm. Psalm chapter 22. It's Jesus prophetically speaking from the tree of Calvary. And I want to read some of it to you. And as I do, think of Jesus on the cross. Psalm 22, verse 1. We're not going to read the whole thing, so we're going to I'm going to read and then we'll skip down to some other passages in the chapter. Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. I know some of you have already turned there and I'll have that actually on the screen. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from words of my groaning? This is literally, Jesus quoted this on the cross. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, it's interesting, and this psalm gives us permission to do something, to ask why. It gives us the permission to ask why, because it was literally the Son of God who, quoting this verse, asked why. Yes. It's, 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 it's not a sin to ask why. We find ourselves... Sometimes in difficult situations, we find ourselves, maybe they're difficult because it's, 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 it's a tragedy of our own making. We've made some bad choices. We've gone down a road. We, we had that fork in the road and we went this way and it was the wrong way. And we knew it was the wrong way and we ended up in trouble. And we end up in that situation. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's just we're, something's happening in our life and we have no idea. We have no earthly clue. We have thought about it from every which way that you can possibly think about something. We've thought about it scientifically, biologically, medically, uh, clinically, psychologically, mentally, historically, philosophically. I mean, we have just worn ourselves out trying to come up with a reason as to why this particular thing is happening to us. And the good news is, is we have permission to ask why. And, that, and there is an answer. Amen? There is an answer. Skipping down to Psalm chapter 22, verse 14 through 18. I'll read these and some of them I will actually put on the screen. Verse 14 says this, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. 
This is where the psalm gets very specifically specific in articulating what is happening physically to the body that is actually being crucified, that is hanging on a cross, okay? And you need to understand, most of you know this, but just for the benefit of everyone here, we think crucifixion was like, in that time, it was the, it was the form of, of execution. It was like, you know, the electric chair or the, you know, whatever form, you know, back in the day, the firing squad, the, you know, whatever it was, this was the cross. So a lot of people think of the cross and their only knowledge of the cross is like some guy named Jesus was, died on a cross and people wear gold crosses on their necklaces, okay? No, go back 2,000 years, a lot of people were hanging on crosses. And when people hung on crosses, this is what happened. They literally felt like they were being poured out that, that one of the things that happens is literally you, you dry up and you become very thirsty. One of the things that Jesus actually said from the cross was that he said, I thirst. And remember, they gave him that, they gave him that vinegar. And, that, um, and then they gave him the vinegar mixed with the, with the, with the wine, the alcohol, because a lot of them, they would give him the alcohol. And he actually, he actually rejected that. He just, he didn't want it. And uh, there's a lot to that, just real quickly. You know, Jesus just went through it for you. He didn't take any any pain, uh, dulling thing. I mean, he went through the whole thing for you and me. He didn't, oh, here's some wine, here's some gall. No, he, he was in his full attentive mind as he was on the cross. And uh, he was being poured out, poured out like water. The, 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 uh, the liquid, the, just the, um, you know, I mean, we're mostly water, right? I mean, that's what we learn. I mean, you know, you, you go out there, you go a little bit without water, and you're not going to make it very much. And one of the things is on the cross, you become very, very thirsty. That's verse 14. Go down to 15. I'll actually have that one on the screen for you. He says, my strength is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue clings to the jaws, to my jaws, and you have brought me to the dust of death. So this is what literally happens. Um, basically, they, you wear out on the cross, and um, you, your uh, tongue actually begins, because you get so dried out, your tongue literally begins to come to the top of your mouth, and it's, it, it, it's just, it's kind of a horrific, it's really a horrific death. You have brought me to the dust of death. Verse 16, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I want to remind you, this is a thousand years before Jesus went to the cross. Many years before crucifixion was invented as a form of capital punishment. They pierced my hands and my feet. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. They look at me, they look and stare at me. And then verse 18, I'll have that on the screen. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. And so we have that scene in the gospels as the Roman soldiers are just kind of whiling away the hours waiting for those being crucified on that day with Jesus, waiting for Jesus and the others to die. And there they are gambling for the clothes of Christ. And it was foretold all the way back here in Psalm chapter 22. And we could go on and there's much more to, be, to say about Psalm 22. But I want to take your attention 
back to the middle of the psalm there. Psalm chapter 22, verse 6. Where he says, but I am a worm and no man. I'm a worm and no man. It is a, it is a quotation from this messianic psalm of Christ enduring his execution. You think about Jesus on the cross. There's so many ways to think about it. There's so many ways that it has been conveyed to us to, to get us to think about just the completely incredible, amazing scene whereas you have the creator of the earth, of the universe, who was put on human flesh, born as a babe, grew up, became a man, walked and walks up to a hill on the earth that he made, and he's nailed to a cross, and he's crucified. He's, it was a humbling, you talk about the humility of Christ. In theology, they talk, it is actually said, it is actually portrayed this way, it's, the, it's called the humiliation of Christ. The humiliation of Christ. You know, we think of a humiliating thing of like, you know, walking out of the bathroom with toilet paper stuck to the bottom of our foot. No, no, no. This was the humiliation of Christ. The Creator puts on human flesh and is hanging on a tree for you and me. It's an incredible, incredible thing. He first descended to the earth. And then he went all the way down to the dirt. He went to the lowest possible place where he's literally on the cross hanging between two thieves. And the disciples and the people that were following him were scattered at the cross. And so there you have it. He's descended all the way down to the lowest of lows. Remember, he's God. He's the son of God. And here he is. He's abandoned on the cross. The Messiah is saying from the prophetic psalm that he is a worm. I am a toloth. Again, the word toloth is one of those words in Hebrew that that yes, it's a worm, but it also is synonymous with the scarlet. And so if you said worm, it was like you were saying, in a way, you know, it was understood. And I don't know, I don't have a good example, and shame on me for not having a good example of this. But it's one of those words that you say it, your hearers understand, but there's, there's this other thing there that is, that's obvious, this other meaning, meaning. Right? I'm a worm. I'm scarlet. I'm a worm. I'm scarlet. Scarlet? Scarlet is a picture of our sins. 
Nathaniel Hawthorne picks up on this theme in his book, The Scarlet Letter. Remember when he wrote that, and so Hester Prynne, yeah, let's go back to literature class. <laughs> right? So Hester Prynne is accused of adultery, and her punishment is that she has to wear this scarlet A around. That's her punishment, and she just becomes the outcast because she has this scarlet A. She bears that sin upon her. Scarlet letter. But Jesus is saying, I am a worm. I am scarlet. The scarlet worm goes through an interesting process in order to reproduce. This worm, this toloth worm, literally climbs a tree. I want you to pay attention here if you're not following. If, you, if you've dozed off, come back. This is what the scarlet, the toloth worm does to reproduce. It climbs a tree and dies on the tree to give new life. When it dies, it leaves a red or scarlet marking on the tree. Then after about three or four days, the red markings change, and they turn white and then flake off like snow. This is a remarkable picture that God places right into nature itself. Remember we talked about a picture being worth a thousand words. Right here, that becomes true once again. So then look what God says in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. I'll have it on the screen for you. God speaking to us, he says this, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And this is just an incredible, incredible picture of what God has done for us. He is the worm that was put on a tree and died. And he shed that blood. He shed the, the scarlet blood, if you will, to cover the scarlet sins of all humanity. And then after three days, it flaked like snow. He came out of that grave on the third day, amen? And when he became victorious over death, he was victorious over death, hell, the grave, and sin, and he won a victory. He won a victory when that happened, and that victory is for you. You become, when you come to Christ, when you accept Christ into your life, you become victorious in Christ. You become the victor. You become the winner. Amen? You're no longer the loser. God tried to put this message into the heart of his people. He'd say, look, you're the head and you're not the tail. You're the winner, you're not the loser. You, you, you could have been that low. You, you might have been that low. In fact, you probably were that low. You were down in a miry pit. You were down in a miry pit. You were down in the mud and the sky. You were probably a worm. But Jesus came lower than where you were. Jesus went lower. 
If you ever think that you're low, if you ever think that you're down and out, if you ever think no one loves you, if you ever feel like you've been abandoned, if you ever feel like no one loves you, let me tell you what Jesus did. The Son of God, he came into this world, he put on flesh, and he became a worm for us, and he went to the lowest possible place and descended and became victorious over the whole thing. Amen? Amen? Amen. So when you were at your lowest, when you were as as low as the worms, Jesus went to the lowest possible place to bring you out, to buy you out, to buy you back from the bondage of sin, to bring you up from the depths. We could never reach God because of our sin, but he came down to the lowest possible place. I want to wrap this up with this. And I'm being dead serious. This isn't like a Babylon Bee, and I'm not going to be teaching for another 45 minutes, okay? (laughs) The Apostle Paul, in the book of Ephesians, he talks about this. Jesus descending. Look at it. I'll have it on the screen behind me. Ephesians 4, chapter, uh, verse 9 and 10. He said, he said this. Well, back up. Take it down. Take it down, black screen. The previous verses Paul is talking about, he's saying that, that, that the Messiah ascended and he brought forth captives in his train, Right? He ascended and he brought forth the captives in his train. And so Paul kind of wanting to, and again, Paul always wanting to kind of fill in the gaps and head off any possible misunderstanding. He goes back and he says, now this, verse 9, put it back up. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. And he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Amen? So what is this talking about? That Jesus went to the lowest of the lows. He went lower than you will ever dream about going. He literally called captives out of their chains and led captivity captive, free. Amen? What does it mean that he ascended? It means that he first descended. He descended to come down here to us. And not only that, but he descended all the way to the earth, to the grave, to what the Hebrews would call Sheol, to what... The the Greeks, the Hellenists would call Hades. And he he ascended. And he ascended. And he gives you the victory. He gives you the victory. You can be one of those captives that are led out of captivity. Amen? How do you do it? You just have to accept Jesus. You have to believe upon him. You have to confess him as Lord and Savior of your life and be, believe in your heart that the Father raised 
the son from the dead. And Paul says, you will be saved. Putting all your hope, all your trust, all of your life in God. And you will be saved. The prophet said it like this, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Because he's mighty to save. He's mighty to save. Amen? So I am a worm. I am a worm. I am a toloth worm. I am that scarlet worm that took upon your sins so that you could be brought back from the dead.